Please take your Bibles and turn to Lamentations 5. Today we come to this final chapter in the book of Lamentations. Chapter 5. It's been a bit of a unique journey, particularly in that we find the emphasis of the book, a book of lament rooted firmly in hope, mercy, and joy in the latter end. And all throughout we have sought to keep our feet firmly rooted in the structure of the book, consisting, of course, of these five primary lamentations. Chapter 1, reflecting Jerusalem's sorrow. Chapter 2, God's anger. Chapter 3, Jeremiah's sorrow, giving way to that hope. Chapter 4, God's anger. Chapter 5, the remnant sorrow in this chiastic structure. Recall as well the nature of this book as, as it stands. Chapters 1, 2, and 4, made up of, and 5, made up of 22 verses. Chapters 1, 2, and 4 being an acrostic with each verse beginning with the uh, subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet beginning at Aleph and then Beth and then Gimel and then Daleth and all the way through the Hebrew alphabet as it would relate to the first letter of each line of each verse. Chapter 3, of course, also an acrostic being slightly unique, however, in that it's not 22 verses, it's 66 verses with the first three verses starting in, with Aleph and then the second three Beth and such. And we have mentioned several times that this structure, while yet 22 verses in Lamentations 5, Lamentations 5 has no such acrostic structure. Uh, the, the, there is no general design uh, such that the first verse begins with Aleph and the second verse begins with Beth and such, as in all of the other chapters. And this is not necessarily for any deep or, or particularly profound reason, but only that the poem shifts. Whereas all of the others were very, very poetically focused, in chapter 5, the, the poem actually shifts into a prayer. And, and to that end, it does not need to be as poetic, does not reflect Hebrew poetry. Uh, it rather reflects the uh, nature of prayer. Thus, the structure need not be maintained because uh, this is significantly more prayer than poem in chapter 5. As we step into this final chapter, we do so knowing already and in its fullness the message which the author desires us to take away. We find in these verses a, a heightened sense of the need for the hope and the joy uh, that our climax in chapter 3 presented unto us this hope and this joy in the midst of the sorrows which surround us in this life. So as we exposit this chapter, verses 1 through 3 tells us, Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Consider and behold our reproach. Our inheritance is turned to strangers, our houses to aliens. We are orphans and fatherless, our mothers, our widows. The preliminary exhortation that undergirds uh, this chapter is the call to God to remember His people to call them back to his mind. This request does not imply by any means that God has forgotten uh, them in so many words. It does not imply that God has failed in some way or abrogated his duty in some way or fallen short in some way. 
much to the rather, it, it is that God has ceased his blessing upon the nation. He has ceased what they would desire or expect in this regard. His heart has not turned unto them for good. And to that end, the remnant asks the Lord to bring the nation back into his mind or to bring them back into his favor in such a way. And why it is, I presume this to be the remnant, by the way, I say here that this is the remnant sorrow. There's a twofold reason why I would presume this to be the prayer of the remnant. First, of course, we, we know that a group is talking because we see those first person plural pronouns, we and us, right? So it's a group. And then second, we find that those speaking are in the land, but the land is not theirs. And we'll see that as we continue throughout the chapter, uh, that they are in the land of promise still, but the land of promise is not theirs any longer. So this is why we, I would interpret into this the idea that this is the prayer of the remnant of God's people. Uh, perhaps Jeremiah, we know that Jeremiah was in that remnant, right? He was there, and then he went down to, to Egypt, and then they went back eventually um, to, to uh, Israel. And we know Jeremiah was in that remnant, and perhaps it is that remnant uh, that we see speaking here um, in this way. So the remnant asks the Lord to consider their reproach, and the list that follows is that reproach. First, the inheritance of the land of their fathers, that inheritance, the houses which they built to live in that land of promise, were inhabited not by them, but by strangers. We spoke in Sunday school this morning about that idea, right? That idea of the man who rests under his own fig tree. Um, and the idea of a man who has his land and who is living off of the, out of the fruit of his own land, profiting from his own land. And we are, we are seeing this idea uh, come here where they are in the land, but they are, are, their, their inheritance is no longer their own. And in contradiction to that or in contrast to that, Verse 3 says, we are orphans and fatherless. Our mothers are widows. God's people are orphans and widows. Verses 4 through 6, we have drunken our water for money. Our wood is sold unto us. Our necks are under persecution. We labor and have no rest. We have given the hand to the Egyptians and to the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. Far from a nation which is free and autonomous, the remnant says they are forced to pay for water out of their own wealth. That they are forced to pay for the wood from their own forests. They labor under persecution as their fathers had in the time of Egypt. They were laborers. They worked the land, but they did not profit from the labor of their, their work. Others profited from the labor of their work. They rested under persecution. We know that following the overthrow, the remnant spent time in Egypt, as we just mentioned, before uh, returning into the land. We find some measure of, of admission to this here. We have given the hand, the remnant says in verse 6, to the Egyptians. This idiom is speaking of a token of submission, the idea of handing your hand over. We have given our hand over. We have given our labor over. We have given our, our, our strength over. First to Egypt, and then as they returned to the land, presumably to the Assyrians, who were still uh, notable in that region, and uh, of course the Babylonians being uh, a part of that. And the only way they were able to eat, they speak, was by subjugating themselves, by, by submitting themselves to the power of others. Verses 7 through 9. Our fathers have sinned and are not and we have borne their iniquities. Servants have ruled over us. There is none that doth deliver 
us out of their hand. We get our bread with the peril of our lives because of the sword of the wilderness. Verse 7 reflects again the spirit of verse 1. Not that the remnant is accusing the Lord of having forsaken them, but in, in a much more, if I can put it this way, in a much more confessionary fashion, in a much more uh, 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 fashion of, of confessing or of repenting in a sense, they're acknowledging the sin of their fathers. Now, there are two ways that this can be taken, both of them seemingly valid. First, the remnant recognizing that the cumulative sins of their fathers from generation to generation has finally reached a tipping point in their day, that their fathers have sinned and their fathers have sinned and there was a cumulative effect of all the sins of the fathers that reached a tipping point. We know that that's true, right, because we've seen it prophetically. We've seen how God has, has, has told various kings, um, I am not bringing judgment in your day because of your repentance, but I cannot allow the sin of your fathers, the, your sin, the sin of your fathers, the sin of the land to go un, undealt with, right? So we know that there was a building up or a cumulative effect of the sins of the fathers. Second, perhaps the acknowledgement specifically from the description of the remnant as widows and orphans that the generation that lives as a remnant is a young generation and they are the children of rebellious fathers whose choices led to the destruction in which they now live. So while many who were a part of this remnant were perhaps of those who uh, were not fully aware of the rebellion within which the land had settled, they now recognize and are acknowledging that the direction that the that their posterity, that their, their, their fathers and grandfathers and such had gone, was in fact sinful. And that they were confessing that. Their fathers, of course, having been destroyed in the overthrow. Both, no doubt, ring, would ring true. The condition of the nation uh, within this confessionary idea is now very perilous. Israel, ever intended to be a kingdom of priests before the Lord, was now a nation of servants, a nation which was intended by God so that 100 would chase 10,000, was in fact in peril even to be able to glean their daily bread. The tremendous indignities of their, of their position were enumerated, uh, beginning in verse 10. He says, Our skin was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. They ravished the women in Zion, and the maids in the cities of Judah. Princes are hanged up by their hand. The faces of the elders were not honored. We see again this picture of the intensity of the famine through the scorched and blackened skin of those who have been pounded by the sun. A poetic picture of the very elements of nature even chastening the remnant for sin. The remnant speaks of the indignities done to their women being treated as less than human and of the princes, those nobles of the nation, and the elders, those revered among the people who were entirely dishonored among their enemies. Verses 13 and 14. They took the young men to grind, and the children fell under the wood. The elders have ceased from the gate, the young men from their music. Continual description of the fallout. And of course, we've seen this structurally in each chapter, where it begins by enumerating the fallout of sin, by enumerating the consequences of sin. And, and it is very repetitious in doing so. The final verse is describing the suffering here of the remnant, expressing the servitude into, the which, into which the young men and children have fallen. There are no more elders sitting in the gate. There are no more musicians playing in the land. The description of their misery is complete. And it gives way in verse 15 
to their emotional state. Verses 15 through 18. The joy of our heart is ceased. Our dance is turned into mourning. The crown is fallen from our head. Woe unto us that we have sinned. For this our heart is faint. For these things our eyes are dim because of the mountain of Zion, which is desolate. The foxes walk upon it. We see the description here of their desolation. Their joy ceased. Their dancing turned to mourning. The crown, that would be the significance of their honor, the, the, uh, their dignity has fallen from their head. And so they, de- they declare in verse 16, Woe unto us! And notice their rightly placed center of sorrow. This is why as we go back to verse 1, we would understand here that the remnant is not speaking accusingly of the Lord as if the Lord has failed them in some way, but simply that they are, they are seeking for the Lord to, to bring them back into favor because they say here, Woe unto us that we have sinned. They're acknowledging their sin. And for this sin, the remnant says, their heart is faint, their eyes are dim. Expressions of mourning and of sorrow and of tears. That they have wept for their sin and for the consequences it has brought upon themselves and their nation. Because the city is desolate and foxes walk upon it. The idea is that the walls are torn down. There is, uh, there is a, a, a wildness, an overgrown nature now to the city in that the foxes are now walking upon uh, the, the streets of the city rather than people. And this leads the remnant to their final cry. The final cry of the remnant, the final cry of the book. Verses 19 through 22. Thou, O Lord, remainest forever. Thy throne from generation to generation. Wherefore dost thou forget us forever and forsake us for so long time? Turn thou us unto thee, O Lord, and we shall be turned. Renew our days as of old, but thou hast utterly rejected us. Thou art very wroth against us. I love these last verses. They'll be what we focus on in the remainder of our time. The remnant here acknowledges that God is unchanging, that he remains from generation to generation upon the throne, acknowledging thus God's control. So then the question is, Lord, why have you forgotten us so long? And as with the beginning of the lamentation, so too at the end, the remnant calls for God to remember them, to set aside his anger and his rejection and, 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 and to, to cease from his anger. But notice, and I love this, they don't say, Lord, turn unto us. They say, Lord, turn us unto thee. There's quite a distinction in that, isn't there? That in their confidence in a God who remains, that in their expectation and understanding and recognition of the sorrow of their sin. They don't say, Lord, turn back to us, though poetically that's a perfectly valid statement. We see it in the Psalms regularly. But rather, they say, Lord, turn us unto thee. God, you're unchanging. I need to change. Change me is the call. Change me. As we finish the book today, what more can we say than what has been said? We've considered the destructive nature of sin in chapter 1. We've considered Christ's gospel in light of it. We've warned against our emotions overriding biblical truth in chapter 3. 
We've contemplated God's faithfulness even in sorrow. We've dwelled upon Christ's goodness and gentleness to we who are sinners in chapter 4. And in our final time together in this book of the Lamentations, I would like for us to contemplate deeper these last verses, namely verse 19. Thou, O Lord, remainest forever, thy throne from generation to generation. The essence of this exclamation is a deep-seated confidence in the sovereign control of God. That regardless of the circumstances around us, we can live in utmost confidence that God is on the throne and acting in full accordance with His expectations and with His will. And this ought to give us a measure of peace in a world which is otherwise very opposite of peace. It ought to give us a measure of peace not just in the good times and not even just when man in and of himself has brought upon us terrible consequences, but it ought to give us a measure of peace when even we ourselves are standing outside of the fullness of God's blessing. When even we ourselves are experiencing a nature of chastening for the sins into which we have chosen, there ought to be able to be a measure of peace as we turn our hearts back to the Lord in recognizing that He has not changed and that his plan is still the same. I remember a pastor many years ago uh, when I was in seminary, and he was giving a measure of advice. And I don't know, uh, the, the advice itself is not too much to me, but the concept behind it was interesting. He encouraged us as ministers to remain steadfast, not just in our ministries, but even in the manner in which we present ourselves. He said, if you have a certain haircut, keep it. If you, have, if, you, you know, if, 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 you, if you have a presentation, keep it. Don't, uh, don't, don't get the beard long. Don't get the beard short. Find a style and keep it. He said there's something about when somebody comes back five years after they first were coming and everything is still just going. You look, you're the same. It's the same. People are the same. It, it, it reflects a measure of faithfulness, right? That, oh, I've been gone for a while, but they're still here doing their thing. They're still faithful. And even pastor looks the same, right? And, and there's this idea. And, and, and he gave this exhortation. And again, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily, uh, as, it relates to, as it relates to the physical, I don't, I don't necessarily have a, a huge opinion one way or another. But isn't it wonderful that I can find myself drifting in the wilderness for a while, spiritually speaking. And when I come back to the Lord, I know exactly what, who I'm coming back to. I know exactly what to expect. And I know exactly what, what the outcome will be if I realign. Because God has not changed. I know how to, I know how to come back, and I know what's going to happen when I come back. I know, I know the prescription of repentance and I know what, what the results of that repentance will be. Because there's a consistency to God's character. We live in changing times, don't we? As a society, we live in changing times. Very rare to have such dramatic changes as it would relate to various uh, elements of, of society, at least within the scope of, of the United States history perhaps rivaled only by the revolution of the 60s and then the time of the Civil War, perhaps we could throw in there World War II as well. It could be argued that the fundamental shift that we're seeing in mindset within this time is the deepest fundamental shift we've seen in Western society in, in, in a number of generations. We've gone 
from thousands of years of flames within the last 150 or so years to electricity and lights. We've gone from thousands of years of walking and riding animals to cars, trains, and airplanes. We've gone from thousands of years of local communication to being connected with the entire world instantaneously. Add to that the tremendous societal changes morally in our culture right now. A division sown in a deep disagreement over the very character of humanity. And on a broader scale, a deep disagreement over whether things such as Western culture, things such as Judeo-Christian values, things which have undergirded the, 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 the vast majority of the Western world for the last 2,000 years are even worth fighting for. And these things can naturally lead to a great deal of instability within our own hearts, can they not? Fear and concern over the nature of tomorrow. Wondering what kind of world my children and my grandchildren are going to inherit. What their state and their condition will be. Other concerns are more localized. Changes of so in society due to technology. Changes in society due to uh, the general rejection of Judeo-Christian values. Changes in our own lives. Illness in myself or in my loved ones. Concerns over finances. The regular cares that come with caring for oneself and those that we love. And there are times when the feelings of being out of control can truly feel overwhelming, aren't there? And it was perhaps in some way like that in Daniel's day. He'd been taken from his home to a land far away, and it was a foreign land. It was a land that was very, very different from what he had known in the, those early years growing up as a prince in Israel. The city of his birth was the city of kings. And now that city was in a place of subjugation and weakness. King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, and if we take the testimony of the scriptures as anything, one of the uh, presiding over one of the greatest kingdoms that has ever existed in glory and majesty and in power. The head of gold, right? King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And within this dream, he is troubled. And naturally, when the king is troubled, everyone's troubled. His wise men could not interpret this dream. So he tells his servants to kill them all. Until Daniel speaks up and he asks for time that he might be able to show the king the interpretation. Not because he has any confidence that he would be able to do so, but he knows that there's a God in heaven who could, should he see fit. Upon being given this time, Daniel and his companions immediately begin to pray, and God reveals this dream, as you know. And they did this for a singular reason, which Daniel would acknowledge before the king, that there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets. And he can reveal those secrets because he knows them. And he knows them because there's nothing secret unto him. So Daniel and his companions pray a prayer of petition and ask the Lord to reveal this thing. And the scriptures tell us that it is revealed unto Daniel. 
Within the scope of this dream, as I just mentioned ever so briefly, Daniel is told the whole plan for world history. He is told of the empires which would rise and the empires which would fall. He is told the order in which those empires would rise and the order in which those empires would fall. And he is led through this timetable all the way to the kingdom of Messiah, an unhewn stone which hits the bottom of this statue, grinds it to powder, and then becomes a grand mountain. You can perhaps imagine how overwhelming this dream must have been for him in a sense. You can perhaps imagine just how big of a perspective change this would have worked in Daniel's mind as it relates to history. If God can tell him the rise and the fall of the empires of the world, this must be because God not only knows but rules over men. There's nothing that any man can or will ever do which is outside of God's knowledge and by extension thus God's power. So Daniel lifts up another prayer. After having lifted up the prayer asking the Lord to reveal these things, Daniel then prays a prayer after having had this revealed to him. And that prayer is recorded in Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. The Bible says, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are His. And He changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness and the light dwelleth with Him. It is God that changes the times and the seasons. It is God who directs the epochs of history. The Reformation, God knew. The Industrial Revolution, God knew. The Digital Revolution, God knew that one too. These things don't come as a surprise to God. They don't threaten His plan. Everything that is written in the prophets and in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ by extension, everything that Jesus said about the end of days in Matthew 24, all of that was given by a God who knew how history would play out. The God who calls for us to trust Him. The God who calls for us to rest in Him. The God who calls for us to find joy even in sorrow. The God who calls us to be careful, to be anxious for nothing. This is the God who knows and who knew how and when your loved one would get sick. This is the God who knew what your financial state would be. This is the God who knew what the culture and the politics of the day would be. God stands above it all, looking down from beginning to end and weaving history together according to His good pleasure. And yet, for all of this, we also know from Scripture that history is not already written. In the sense, God knows it. God has woven it together. But this does not by any means imply that our actions do not and indeed cannot have consequences upon the world around us or upon history as it unfolds. God knows the history that will unfold, but that doesn't mean God is forcing that history to come to pass. My will is still free. 
I have before likened history, and I credit A.W. Tozer for this illustration, to a great ocean liner crossing the ocean, naturally. The ship has a course upon which it's headed. It is going from point A to point B. And no passenger on the ship is going to, through his direct actions, within a normal scope of events, fundamentally change the destination or the time in which it arrives. I could say, well, I'm going to see if I can affect the ship by jumping up and down on one side of the ship, but the ship is too big for it to be affected by one man jumping up and down on one side of the ship or the other. But what happens on that ship between point A and point B, though the destination is firm, though the time upon which it arrives is settled, what happens on that ship among the individual passengers is malleable, right? It's changeable. I'm going to determine when I want to eat or if I don't want to eat. I'm going to determine when I want to sleep or if I want to sleep. I'm going to determine, determine what my recreation will or will not be throughout that time. And none of those decisions that I am making are, are predetermined by my destination. But simultaneously, none of those decisions that I'm making is going to affect the destination or the time in which we are going to arrive at it. Those decisions have real-world consequences upon the people of the ship, but none of it changes the ultimate destination. And I think this is a good, if not entirely complete, illustration of the interplay between God's ultimate control and man's free will. What we do changes elements of history as they play out, fundamentally changes our lives and the lives of others as it relates to history, and this is why we are called unto a certain manner of wisdom and living. We are exhorted unto it, and we are exhorted to seek it with all of our hearts. But nothing that man can or, or do, can do or will do, excuse me, will ever change God's plan or can ever compete with what God has foreordained. And this leads us to a, a twofold mindset as it relates to life and as it relates to how we live it. First, we live in confidence knowing that God is in absolute control, that nothing is outside of the scope of God's knowledge, that nothing takes God by surprise. And second, it instills within me an urgent realization that my choices still fundamentally matter, both to my life and the lives of those around me, both in this life and unto eternity. That I can either jump into the flow of what God is doing and what God has ordained in this world, and so align with God's purposes and align with God's promises and then finally uh, aligning with, with God's will and all of these things. Or I can walk against that flow and I can live life upon my own terms and I can face the consequences of doing so. The flow is going to continue though. And the interplay of these themes, the call into this twofold mindset is wonderfully established within the book of the Lamentations within the recognition of God's ultimate unchanging nature. And thus it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. Those mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And yet the, the cry of the heart of the remnant, woe unto us because of our sin. Our fathers have sinned. We see that interplay. All throughout we have seen Jeremiah acknowledge the direct correlation between the sin of Judah 
and the sorrow of the nation, their determination to rebel, to walk against the flow of God's will and of God's purpose, and it has caused their nation to be destroyed and their culture to be in disarray, and those few from among them who live through it do so in suffering and sorrow simply basically to testify of God's faithfulness and God's righteousness in doing it. And interwoven into these realities, though, is a second theme, is it not? That all of these things that have transpired have not done so because God in any way has changed. There is nothing about the things that have happened as it relates to Jeremiah and Lamentations that in any way is a departure from God's expectation, God's character, or God's promises. But rather, the nation had changed. Not that God had moved or fundamentally altered himself or his plan, but that the nation had moved and fundamentally altered how they are living in relation to God and his plan and how God must then deal with them in relation to their disposition toward him. Because God remains forever and his throne is from generation to generation. God has always had the same desire, the same plan from every generation to have a creation that loves him, who walks in intimate fellowship with him and with whom he can share himself. And throughout history, man has either aligned with God's plan or he has opposed God's plan, thus joining with God's enemy, Satan. So much so that at certain points in history, such as with the flood and with the crucifixion, God supernaturally stepped into history with major events of judgment and redemption to establish and preserve his plan in spite of man's deep rebellion. And this leads us to perhaps the greatest application of God's enduring faithfulness and unchanging nature. A word in theological terms, the word for that is immutability. Not only that, at its face, God's will and word shall stand from generation to generation. Not simply that God is reliable and trustworthy to do what he has said he will do, but that God, in his unchanging nature, in his faithfulness, by which we declare, as does Jeremiah in Lamentations 5, verse 19, Thou, O Lord, remainest forever, thy throne from generation to generation, that this unchanging God loves you. This unchanging God loves you. And we know this matters within the scope of the Lamentations, because this is what Lamentations 3 directs us unto. This is the climax. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. God is faithful and He directs His faithfulness not only unto the end that He will rule and reign over a creation that bears His image and is chosen to love Him, but that this love that they feel toward him, toward God, is in response to the love that God first showed toward them. But the glory and the magnificence of this truth goes deeper still. For not only has God shown this love toward his creation in unchanging faithfulness, but God showed this love when we were at our worst not when we were at our best. When we consider the unchanging faithfulness of God, the, 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 the sovereignty of God, the dominion of God, when we consider His holiness, 
when we consider his righteousness and then we consider the reality that all of the unchanging elements of his nature does not just apply to his holiness and his righteousness, but it applies to his love. And we recognize that God loved us when we were at our worst. That God pursued mankind in, in his sin, right? When he was in his sin. That God loves even the worst of this world. That God paid the price to re re redeem even the least among us. And for we who have identified this love and accepted this love and requited this love and, and live in the, in the glory of this love and live in the light of this love, it can, if we have a proper understanding of this love, take us inevitably to a confidence and a determination. The same confidence and the determination of which we spoke a few moments ago on a broader scale. Number one, absolute confidence in God's control regardless of circumstances. And number two, an absolute determination to align myself with God's plan in humble and thankful love. This is where God's unchanging nature, recognizing not just that He is unchanging, but that His love is unchanging, can take us. If we live in these two realities, in a complete confidence in God's way, in God's plan, in God's control, in God's unchanging love, and in a complete determination thus to align myself with God's way and with God's plan and with God's control and with God's unchanging love through a steadfast love of my own, my life will echo into eternity with the rewards of which the Apostle Paul states in 1 Corinthians 2.9, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. This is the future of those who understand this concept. We are told just the very least bit of what God has prepared for those that love Him. We're told of streets of gold. We're told of gates of pearl. We're told of the tree of life bearing a different fruit in every month. We are told of tears being wiped away. We are told of crowns. We are told of a sea of glass. We are told of a throne. We are told of an utter lack of remembrance of sin and sorrow of this mortal life. But let us be clear. The things which God has prepared for those who recognize God for who He is and requite God unto the same cannot even be comprehended by the greatest of our imaginative powers. And the practical outworking of these realities touch every thought and action and decision within the scope of our lives. We spoke earlier about some of the implications of a mindset of confidence in God's control. That when my health is not what I would want it to be or the health of my loved ones, or my children face adversity, or my finances are not as they ought, or my aspirations and my endeavors seem to be crumbling around me, when the society and the culture around me tempt me to fear for the future of my family, for my children, for my grandchildren, when I would be tempted to be led into the fear of the future that is entirely unknown, when I would be tempted to fret, to live in frustration and wonder, I am instead compelled to be led by confidence. Not in what I know about the future, but in what I know about the God who holds that future. 
we're stepping into an election year. Those are always difficult. They've become increasingly difficult. You cannot escape everything surrounding it. It's inescapable. The news, the, and as we, as we get closer to November, it just gets overwhelming. But you serve a God who knows. You serve a God who is in control. You serve a God who has not been thrown off by any leader. You serve a God whose plan has remained intact throughout. We need to remember that. It's the next point, though. The second point where my, the burden of my heart rests in this final message in Lamentations. Absolute, this absolute determination, the twofold determination of God's people in response to God's unchanging nature, in response to his immutability. First, an absolute confidence in God's control regardless of circumstances. Second, an absolute determination to align myself with God's plan in humble and thankful love. And the burden on my heart as it relates to this point is, is twofold. First, having to do with what this means for our thoughts. And second, having to do with what this means for our actions. And of course, they're interrelated. Christianity is an inside-out manner of living. I've said that before. Religion seeks to influence the outside and then somehow jam that into us. A relationship with the true and living God is an inside-out manner of living whereby I align my heart with God and then God changes me. Certainly we have Proverbs 16, verse 3, which tells us that we commit our works into the Lord and our thoughts will be established. The concept there that there are certain things which we cannot or will not understand until we have stepped out and committed them unto the Lord, right? That faith precedes blessing. This falls nicely in line with that idea as we've spoken of it this morning and last week and we've, we've talked about it a lot. And I cannot expect the results of faith until I exercise that faith. And there's that element in Proverbs 16.3. But this is not what I speak of when I state that Christianity is an inside-out manner of living. When I say that God intends our obedience to begin in the heart and then overflow into action rather than attempting to begin an action in hope that it penetrates my heart, I'm speaking of something slightly different. Because e even to truly commit my works to the Lord is to already exercise a faith that shows that my heart is seeking Him. But the struggle within the mind of the believer as it relates to the things of God can be very real, can't it? And that for a number of reasons, or perhaps you might say in a number of directions. Perhaps the struggle in the mind of the believer is to want the things that God hates to desire the things of the flesh which the scriptures tell us we should not desire, to love the things of the world which the scriptures tell us that we should not love. But the struggle can go the other way as well as it relates to aligning with God's plan in mind. To rest under a sense of a fear of failure whereby I have no confidence in God's love so that everything I do or I don't do is an outworking of a misplaced desire or a misplaced fear that if I do or don't do, that God is going to stop loving me. And so I feel like I need to pacify God's anger with some measure of conformity or God will exhibit some degree of coldness toward me. 
And these battles regularly rage within, Christian, within Christians. The struggle to want to do the things that, that, that the flesh loves but that God hates. Or this struggle to feel as though God's love towards me changes based upon my disposition toward him. And we need to talk about these. The first of these is a bit more straightforward. If God is the God of eternity, if he is in absolute control, if we are on that cruise liner, the cruise liner of God's sovereign will unto the historical destination of his foreordained choosing, and if my choices upon this journey will make all the difference as it relates to my disposition at the end of that journey, my choices will not only determine whether I spend eternity in heaven or hell, but also how that eternity plays out as it relates to rewards. Then I would be a fool if I did not position my mindset in this life to conform to the realities of that eternity. In regard to this, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 14, Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we also... Uh, that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Verse 11. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. This is a call into a mindset, is it not? A reckoning. A mindset that says, I am dead with Christ by virtue of salvation, my old man being nailed to Christ's cross, my new man being raised to walk in newness of life, and thus I must reckon myself dead to sin but alive unto God. I must reckon that when I see that thing and I crave it because it is of the world and I am still in this body of flesh and I still have this sin nature raging in me, but I remind myself, no, this craving is a lie. This is not what I actually want, and I must reckon it to be so. I must see through the veneer and the veil of the lie of the, the empty promise that that thing would seek to call me unto and see it for what it truly is, which is something that is going to separate me from the love of God. The life of God is a better, better way to put that because Romans 8 says nothing can separate us from the love of God, right? from fellowship with God. And so I reckon myself dead to sin and alive unto Christ, and I assume a mindset by which I come to see my sin as dead, not only to God, but, and this is also, this is more specifically and more importantly, dead to me, that my sin is dead to me, that these cravings are dead to me. And it's not because they have completely gone away, but because I see them now for what they are. I see them as the thing which would seek to separate me from fellowship with my God. So Paul would write in Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth not walk as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, 
because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. In other words, you know what Christ has said. You know what Christ has said about these things. If you have learned Christ, reckon it in your lives. That you put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Now, I'm trying to be careful not to roll over from thought to action, right? Because we're still on the thought element of this idea here. Uh, and that's hard because one naturally begets the other. But stay focused on your mind. Stay focused on your thinking with me for the moment. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind, Paul said. If the way that the Gentiles walk is a way of emptiness that will lead to nowhere fast so that there was a day where the light of the gospel shined into my heart and I recognized that this has substance, this has truth, this is real, and this element, these other elements that I've been living in is a lie. If I know that they will alienate me from the life of God, these things who much to all of our sorrow, those who live fully within the alienation from the life of God, live in the ignorance of the power of the resurrection and its potential for their lives in eternity. And if the ignorance which is in them and the blindness of their hearts is compelling their lives into this manner in which they live, and the way that they think about life, so that they give themselves over to the world and to its principles because they know no better way, and if you do know a better way, and you have tasted of that better way, then you need to think like it. You need to reckon it to be so. So 1 John chapter 2, verses 5, 15 through 17 tells us, Love not the world, neither the things which are in the, that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And here's the mindset. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. See, because God is an unchanging God. Because God does not change, and he cannot change, and he will not change. And, and when I align myself with God's principles, and I align myself with God's rewards, he that doeth the will of God abideth forever, because I'm doing that which is in line with the God that abides forever. And the rest of these things, reckon it to be so, Christian. The rest of these things, those trivial things, those earthly things, those worldly things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that's the definition of the world here, not eating and drinking and owning a house and whatever else, right? But those things which are rooted in the sentiments of the world, in the philosophy of the world, they are fleeting, they are empty, they pass away. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And if I reckon this to be so, then this idea, this battle that, that, that does rage in the mind of, of Christians, probably every Christian, I speak for myself, it rages in me, to desire to love those things that God hates. To desire to want those things that God does not want for me can be overridden by the reckoning, the determination, the, reckon, the recognition in me, in my mind, 
that those things are so empty and so fleeting and so characteristic of the darkness into which I once lived that I simply reckon it to where those, I, I reckon and understand them to be what they truly are. Lies. If you believe what John writes in verse 17, then this battle is in the mind. And if you believe what John writes in verse 17, that the world passes away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever, you're going to have a much easier time with verse 15, aren't you? Love not the world. When I, when we, my wife and I moved up to Buffalo, uh, we began by renting for a year. And as it related to motivation around that house, do we want to hang things on the walls? Do we want to paint any rooms? Do we want to do anything to that house? It's very difficult to find the motivation to do so when you know that that house passeth away, right? You're only there for a short, a short time. You're only, it's not, it's not yours. You're, you're, you're renting it. You are, you are passing, you're, you're, you're just a passing through. This house is not my home. And yet when you own a house, it does fundamentally change your perspective on that, doesn't it? This is now an investment. This is now my house. I'm going to improve it. I'm going to make it better. I'm going to make it comfortable. I'm going to make it homey because it's home. It is not to say that, I, I, that we could not have painted and hung pictures and such on that rental. But it is just that in our minds, we could not get over this thought that this is simply not home. This is just a short stop along the journey to, to our roots, to settling down our roots. We might liken it to the same idea. That I look at the things of this world and the lusts of this world and those cravings of this world and the things that, that would allure me of this world and I look at them and I say, I see you for what you are and certainly I could settle into you, but here's the problem. None of it is going to remain. I'm just passing through this world, and any time I invest in you is time lost. And I reckon it to be so. And let me just jump ahead for a moment into actions, because we're running out of time. You've noticed how this mindset in every passage where it's presented inherently gives way to action, right? This is not only a theme, it is in fact inevitable that, the, that, that what I reckon in my mind gives way to what I do in my body. I can act for a very limited amount of time in contradiction to my mind, but I will always default back to what I truly think and believe, right? But if this is what I truly believe, as James chapter 2 says so effectively, my faith will be shown by my works. Godly actions flow out of a godly mind far better than a godly mind can be imposed through godly actions. So Colossians chapter 3 verse 1, seven, uh, one through 7 says, excuse me, just 1 through 4, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things in the earth. Set your affection, mind. 
for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ on high. That's the thought process. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. This is the mindset. I'm risen with Christ. My affections thus rest in the heavenlies where Christ lives because I'm dead and my life is hid with Christ. And there's a day when he's coming back and I will appear with him in glory. And if I believe this, then it gives way to verses five through seven. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. This is the action, right? Fornication and uncleanness and inordinate affection and evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake, the wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience. Reminiscent of what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, that there are those who live in the darkness of their mind and in their ignorance of their hearts and don't live in that place that you have been called out of, right? Verse 7, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. I mortify the deeds of the flesh by will, that doesn't mean it's easy, but I seek after it with all my heart because I'm persuaded in my mind that this is the only way to achieve anything of lasting value unto eternity because the world passes away and the affections and lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So I live in mind, determined to align myself with the mind of Christ, and this gives way to actions which are in keeping with my mental determination, and thus I reject a love for the world and I reject the deeds of the flesh, and I seek those things which are above and I walk in them. There is then only one more thing I want to talk about. And I said I was going to jump ahead to the action part because the action naturally gives way and it was just a good point for it. But I need to go back. We've spoken of the Christian who struggles in mind with sin, wanting sin, desiring sin, frustrated over that desire, and how to assume the mind of Christ, to reckon yourself to be who you are, to understand that God is an unchanging God, that He has established something in the heavenlies, that you are now joined with Him in that unchanging nature of His uh, of, of, of his design and thus we align with that design we reckon it to be so and we allow that thus to flow out into our bodies and we live in the righteousness into which you have been born by grace through faith but I mentioned another mindset that a Christian can have and this is very important this mindset has far less to do with me and far more to do with how I think about God and as significantly closer linked to the concept that we're considering here at the end from Lamentations chapter 5, verse 19. Thou, O Lord, remainest forever, thy throne from generation to generation. There's a large population of Christians who hate sin and are on the path of this process by which they are renewed in their minds. But they have a fundamental misunderstanding of God that hinders them in this endeavor. I lived in this in this problem, this misunderstanding for so many years. And I thank God for the day that He enlightened me to its to the reality of this misunderstanding. this contingency of Christians that have forgotten that God loved them and pursued them and even sent His Son to die for them when they were at, his, at their worst. They know that God is unchanging, that He is ever holy. They know that God is unchanging, that He is ever righteous. They know that God is unchanging, that He is ever just. But they have forgotten or overlooked that God is unchanging in his love toward you. God's love does not fluctuate toward you. If God loved you enough to send his son to die for you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, 
Why would you feel as though God is rejecting you and withholding his love from you because you sinned? It makes no sense. It is inconsistent with the scriptures. These are believers who feel that they can never measure up to God, who live in constant guilt and frustration of their own incapacities, who perceive God as angry with them for their failings, perhaps because they are so angry at themselves for their failings, and they are thus projecting upon God their perception of themselves, as if God perceives them the way they perceive themselves. Do you know that God does not perceive you the way you perceive you? He doesn't. And they fail to remember that God, on his own initiative, without any necessity to himself other than his good pleasure and his will, and certainly not because of anything that I am or anything that I have done, that this God has chosen to place his love upon me. That this God sought me out in love. That this God has gone out of his way to make a way for me to be saved. And when I accept that way, I am accepted of God in Christ. And if God is unchanging, then God's love is unchanging too, Christian. It is not just that God's law is unchanging. It is not just that God's holiness is unchanging. It is not just that God's righteousness is unchanging. It is not that just that God's justice is unchanging. If God is unchanging so that Jeremiah writes, Thou, O Lord, remainest forever, thy throne from generation to generation, and I can rely upon it, and I can rely upon it when I get sick, and I can rely upon it when, I, when I'm, I'm struggling financially, and I can rely upon it as it relates to culture, and I can rely upon it as it relates to politics, I can rely upon it as it relates to my Lord's love toward me. I can. God is unchanging. Christ died for my sins. Then my sin is paid for. And the shame and the guilt and the condemnation was taken on by him. And this frees me to live in that mindset of which we just spoke. That's what it does. It frees me to reckon myself to be free. I do not need to live the rest of my life looking over my shoulder, wondering if God is about to strike me down because he struck Christ down on my behalf. And this frees me to allow my mind to dwell in Christ richly. And it frees me to love God in the manner that he has loved me. And it frees me, as we talked about this morning, to love one another as Christ has loved me. It gives me the confidence to live out these days, not striving to earn anything, for it was all earned by Christ, but instead striving to walk worthy of what has been purchased for me, to walk worthy of that love. And this confidence is reflected by God. I read it this morning in, in uh, response to our singing in Romans 8, 37 through 39. Nay, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. This is why I corrected myself earlier when I said separated from his love. It was fellowship is what I meant there. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't forget these verses, Christian. Don't forget that when we say that God is immutable, that God is unchanging, that it, it applies to his love as well. 
Do you believe this? Do you believe not only that the things of this world are vanity and emptiness and that I must rather seek those things that are above? Have I reckoned that in my mind to be so? But also that you have been freed to live in this way because there is nothing, nothing in this world or the next. There is no demonic power. There is no earthly power. There is no circumstance. There is no topography. There is nothing that shall be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, your Lord. That love, the love of God, is a constant. It is unchanging, and it is effectual in your life every moment of every day, and the only condition is whether or not you're going to live in it. So that as we pray the prayer that they prayed here, that the remnant prayed, turn thou us unto thee. It is a recognition that God still loves them, that the distance they feel is a distance they created, not God, and that as they turn back to the Lord, they will find Him there. And they must find Him there. Jeremiah knew this enough that he could remember the Lord's mercies, which are new every morning, remember his compassions, which fail not. And he knew they could not fail because God remains forever. His throne is from generation to generation. God's love cannot fail because God cannot fail. God's love cannot pass away because God remains forever. And if I'm risen with Christ, I have my part in that love and I shall appear with him in glory. And so I live that because that is who I am, right? I sought to speak to several different kinds of Christians today who might be in several different places within your, your Christian life. Those struggling with a love for sin in action or in mind. Struggling with the concept of God's love for them. Struggling to release a various uh, set of circumstances to the Lord, whether that be broader circumstances such as culture or history or immediate circumstances such as health or wellness or whatever the case may be. Fearful of problems of today, fearful of problems of tomorrow. But the solution to all of them stems from this understanding of God's character Understanding God's word, understanding how it relates so that even in the deepest moment of despair as we see the nation of Israel throughout Lamentations, when they are as orphans and their mothers are as widows, when their skin is blackened with famine and when their princes and their elders are dishonored and they weep for their sin and they weep for the sin of their fathers, they yet can turn and have full confidence that when they look to the Lord, they will find Him there. That when all of this sifts out, they will not be consumed because God's mercies are new every morning. Is that you today? Is that how you are living today? Is that the manner in which you're living today? Or have you allowed some measure, whether it be these spiritual concepts or whether it be physical concepts, to overcome, to overwhelm your rem remembrance of God's unchanging nature? 
Unchanging nature as it relates to his sovereignty. Unchanging nature as it relates to his plan. Unchanging nature as it relates to his design. Unchanging nature as it relates to his love. As we close out Lamentations, let's not forget it, but rather be determined to live in it, to walk in it. And as we reckon it to be so in our minds, then to conform our bodies to that and to walk worthy of the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.